0: and will soon establish forever. On the third Lord's Day of Advent, we light the pink candle to remind us of the joy that God promised his people at the appearing of the Messiah. This week, however, we are not reading from the historical narratives. This week, we read from John's Gospel, where he focuses us on the climax of all of history. He writes of the culmination of God's redemptive history.
1: Our joy comes from knowing that God sent the light of the world to dwell among us. The promised Messiah, Jesus the Christ,
0: came so that we might believe through him. Israel's joy came through God's promised Messiah. Our joy also lays in Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus tells us that when we see him again, nobody will be able to take our joy from us. And then, and only then, will our joy be complete.
1: you may go to your appropriate classes, your respective classes right now. Let's return to the scripture reread with the Rob Ray family and Tyler as we turn to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Before we look at these passages, let's pray together. Our Father, right now we bow before you as your priests, the priests of Christ Presbyterian Church. We're before your throne, before your glory, before all the cherubim, before all the great seraphim, before all the glory. We bow before you, bringing our requests. Our Father, we pray today. We lay Lloyd Bower, Jim Bennington. Priscilla Turner, Janet Sartell before you. We pray that, Father, you would bring healing and strength to their physical bodies. But we pray most of all that you will draw close to them and speak to them only as you're able to speak. We pray that you'll draw them close bring comfort, bring peace, bring assurance and confidence, bring calm to their lives. Our Father, we do thank you for the life of R.C. Sproul. We thank you for how you spoke powerfully through him. And how you blessed your church, how you blessed us through him. We pray for his family, for Vesta, for his children, for his grandchildren. Father, we pray that you would give them all to Jesus. And that they would be faithful in the faith of their father and their grandfather and their great-grandfather. We pray that his testimony and his teaching and his preaching will continue to bring many sons home to glory. Now, as we open your word, we pray that you will speak. Speak to us where we are, each one of us. John Sartell cannot speak, cannot teach. Cannot preach so that it will make any difference in our lives. But we have heard you in this place before, Father. You are able to speak. So that we're profoundly affected even to the core of our being. So that we're changed. Father, we pray that you would continue that change that you originally wrought in us. We pray that you'll continue to change others. Maybe for the first time. We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Have you ever experienced the supernatural power of God? Folks, I love the scripture readings from the gospel that we read during the Advent season. These Advent readings are filled, are filled with the supernatural. For instance, where does Luke begin? He begins with an angel coming to Zacharias and then to Mary. Right there at the beginning of the story in Luke, you have the supernatural, an angel, An angel of all things. His name was Gabriel. And from whence did the angel come? He came from, from God. Matthew also begins his record with that same angel, with the supernatural, with the angel coming to Joseph. In Luke, the angel told the Mary that even though she was a virgin, she would conceive by the power of God and give birth to a man who would be known as the Son of the Most High. Then there is the Apostle John writing his record of the birth of Jesus. We read it this morning. He does not mention angels, not even the virgin birth. He says nothing of a trip to Bethlehem of the angels announcing the birth of the shepherds. None of that. But he cuts right to the bottom line. What were those angels about? What was their message about? What was, what was the virgin birth about? We read it there this morning in John one one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's birth narrative reaches all the way back to creation, to Genesis 1.1. And what happened? What happened? Look at the 14th verse. And the Word became flesh. That Word of verse 1 became flesh. That Word in creation that was God and was with God, became flesh. Why do I love these passages of Advent so much? Because Scripture hurls the truth of the supernatural into the middle of our secular society. Make no mistake, our culture is no longer a Judeo-Christian culture dominated by Judeo-Christian world and life view. We have become a secular society. Our word secular comes from the old French word secular. It means that that word meant world. And the French used it that the old French word was referring to a world outside the church, a world that had nothing to do with church or religion. In our day, the term is used to describe a worldview, a secular worldview, a secular philosophy of life. The secular worldview is that of a closed universe. What do you mean by a closed universe? There's nothing outside the physical universe. The physical universe is closed. There's nothing outside of that. There's nothing that outside that can affect our universe. There's no supernatural. There's nothing but this material world. No God, and hence, no angels. No absolute law, because there's no God to give absolute law. No heaven, no hell, no ultimate justice, no ultimate meaning. In the secular world, any religion with a God is a fairy tale. And what does the Advent do? The scriptures of Advent throw the supernatural into the secular public arena, whether we're in Memphis or Seattle, whether we're in New York or Miami, it doesn't matter. Now, we must say, at this point, That this emphasis of Scripture upon the supernatural did not begin with the Incarnation. It didn't begin with the New Testament. The emphasis on the supernatural saturates Scripture. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, it's on every page. What is the first verse of the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning... God. And there's the supernatural. Go back to the beginning, the very beginning, before any galaxy, before any planet, before any solar system. Ask the secularist to escort you back to the beginning. And on the way there, he tells you that there's nothing before the material world no God, no nothing. And he opens the door, and indeed there's nothing. He says, see, I told you. That's the secularist world. Scripture walks us back to the beginning, before any galaxy, before any sun, planet, or solar system, before any atom or molecule. And Scripture opens the door, and there is God. No, this idea of the supernatural was not introduced in the Gospels with the birth of Christ. It was introduced in Genesis 1.1 and is on every page through Revelation. Where there's a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, a great resurrection, a final judgment where there's life after death. But this morning, this morning, let's look at these Advent passages one more time. And see again the supernatural and ask the question, have you experienced the supernatural power of God? First, I want you to see that the birth of Jesus involved the supernatural. We've already talked about that. Look on your scripture sheets at Luke one twenty-six. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. God, from outside our universe, sent an angel to Mary inside his creation. One cannot speak. I mean, that's just the opening sentence. One cannot speak of the birth of Jesus without referring to the supernatural. You cannot do it. Just saying that an angel appears invokes a supernatural. But even the message, the angel's message, was filled with the supernatural. Look at verses 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Mary herself asked the crucial question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? That's not the way it works inside God's creation. That's not the ordinary course of things. The angel's answer left no doubt this will be a miraculous supernatural conception. That's Luke's version. He throws the supernatural into the secular public arena. Now, as we've seen, John in his record did not speak of Mary, did not speak of the angel or Joseph. He simply described What God was doing in this supernatural conception. In the beginning was the word. and What happened? And the word became flesh. That's his birth narrative. He captured the theology of it. John was saying this creating God became flesh. He invaded his creation. The supernatural invaded the physical creation. The birth of Jesus involved the supernatural. There's no other way around it. Secondly, I want you to see that our spiritual rebirth involves the supernatural. Look at John 1, 11 to 13. Now, if you paid no attention to the first point, wake up and see this. It is really he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become what? Look at it. The children of God who were born, circle born. He's not talking about their physical birth. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born how? Born of God. As John spoke of his chief subject in the first chapter, the supernatural incarnate birth of the Son of God, he spoke of the supernatural rebirth right in the middle of that. He speaks of the rebirth of men and women. Then what happens? Then what happens? Tyler asked me this morning, when, you know, John, the, 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 the passage we read with the Ray family. John 1, 1 through 14. That is an Advent passage. And Tyler said, Do you really want me to read from John chapter 3? Yes. Because in John's mind, there's something that ties them together. He says there in chapter 1, that to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born. Born of God. The very first, now I want to ask you a question, what is the first extensive conversation that John records between Jesus and someone else? If you look back at chapters 1, 2, and 3, you'll see in chapter 2, all the disciples, and you see Jesus speaking, but it's very limited. If you have a red letter edition where the words of Jesus are in the red letter, you'll just see a few lines in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 3, when it comes to Nicodemus, there's this long, extensive conversation. The first long, extensive conversation that John records is about what? is about that rebirth, about the birth that he mentions in chapter 1. Look at John 3, 1 through 5. Now, we've just read from John 1, and here's the first extensive conversation that John records. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, named a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these things unless that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. He goes back to the subject. Immediately of chapter one, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's a physical birth, and the spirit, capital S, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We usually take John chapter 3 and let it stand alone. I've never heard a single message, except one preached by this preacher. I've never heard a single message that tied John 3 with John. And yet it's obvious that's what John was doing. John meant for the words in chapter 1 to naturally flow into what we see and hear in chapter 3. Nicodemus, a leader among the Pharisees, was a very religious man. He was the epitome of a man who believed he would be saved by his good works. He lived a monumental religious life. He believed if a man reformed his life outwardly by the law of God, he would be saved. That has been the curse in the 19, in the first part of the 20th century, the first two-thirds of the 20th century, that was the curse in the Protestant church in this country. We were filled with the thinking of Nicodemus. If a man reformed his life outwardly by the law of God, he would be saved. Jesus looked at Nicodemus (laughs) and he told him, Nicodemus, you're in need of an inward transformation, something you can't do. You're in need of a supernatural reworth wrought by the Holy Spirit. A Nicodemus knocked on my door years ago early on a Monday morning. He was a banker. He had called me the night before and asked if he could come by to see me early on Monday morning on his way to work. He had been a longtime member of a very liberal Presbyterian church. For some reason, I don't know why. He had been sitting in the pews of Independent for just a few weeks, and he was really disturbed. He was hearing the gospel for the first time in his life. I knew uh, knew his former minister. I knew that minister well. I knew he didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I knew that his former minister did not believe in the virgin birth, did not believe in the miracles of Jesus. I'll never forget it. I can see it right now. I can tell you exactly where he was sitting in my house at Mary, on Mary Starnes in Memphis. He looked at me and he was, a, he was a banker. He was a bottom line guy. He was in his 60s. And he said, John, where did you get the idea that we must be born again and what in the world? Except he didn't say world. And what in the world does that mean? Before I read him the story of Nicodemus, you know what I did? I read John
0: 1.
1: I read from John 1.11. I sold my Bible. I said, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born. I said, did you hear that? Jesus speaking, who were born, John was speaking, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. I skipped over to John chapter 3. And I read the account of Jesus and Nicodemus. This, this man, this man was a modern day. I mean, he was Nicodemus made over. All he needed was all the religious garb that Nicodemus had on. He had been a Presbyterian elder, an elder in the Presbyterian church for years. Yet, like Nicodemus, he knew nothing of his need to be supernaturally reborn. I thought of that exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus. Look at verses 9 and 10. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus asked him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things. The good news is that man sat in the pews of a gospel preaching church until the day the Lord called him home. He got it. Let me ask you a question this morning. In John 1 and 3. Is a new birth that's described there, is it something you do or something God does? There's only one answer. It is a transformation of your inner being supernaturally wrought by the Holy Spirit. That's it. And in that sense, you have encountered the supernatural. John moved easily from the supernatural birth of Jesus to our own supernatural rebirth. The birth of Jesus involves a supernatural. Our own spiritual rebirth involves a supernatural. Thirdly, I want you to see that the supernatural birth of the incarnation explains the extraordinary miracles of Jesus. Let me say it again. The supernatural birth, the incarnation, the supernatural aspect of Jesus' birth, explains the extraordinary miracles of Christ. If he was an ordinary man born of an ordinary in an ordinary way, he wouldn't have been able to do what he did. Look in John 3, 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one else can do. He doesn't say, he refers to him as teacher, but he doesn't say no one can say these things. He says no one can do. Circle do. He's talking about his actions. No one can do these, what, signs, signs, doesn't use miracles, signs that you do unless God is with him. That is one of the greatest understatements found in the gospel, that that statement by Nicodemus. No one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. You think? No other man we've ever known in history could make the blind to see by fiat. No one that we've ever known in history could make the paralyzed walk by command. No one could raise the dead by fiat. No one has ever stopped storms by fiat. No other man could speak and whatever he spoke happened. The incredible words of John 1 are proven by the life that Jesus lived. They were signs. Why did he do the miracles over and over again? We've seen it in our study in Luke. He said, I'm doing this so that you can know who I am. My college professor, he was a wonderful teacher. His theology was all messed up. He was one of the secularists. And he would say to me, John, John, How can you believe in the miracles of Jesus? And I would always tell him the same thing. Doctor, if he is indeed God, what do you expect him to do? I told him, I said, if there were no miracles, you would say to me, where are the miracles? Why didn't he do something only God could do? I tell you this this morning. I'm not telling you to hang on to the supernatural because it's an opiate or because it's a crutch or because we need it facing death or whatever. I'm saying this to you. Because the angel really did come. And Jesus really did live. He really was the Son of God. And he proved it. You've got a huge problem. If you look at him and you say, You're not the Son of God, you're not deity, there's an awful lot of there, you know, how do you explain what he did? There's an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. I'm not saying believe this, even if it's a fairy tale. No. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if he didn't really rise from the dead, close the church doors. We of all men. Are to be pitied the most. The birth of Jesus involved the supernatural. Our spiritual rebirth involves the supernatural. The supernatural birth of the incarnation explains the extraordinary miracles of Christ. And this is one at his heart. Finally, the supernatural rebirth of the Christian explains our lives. The supernatural rebirth of the Christian explains our lives. Why do we live the way we do? Because we've been born again. Because we've been changed. Because we've encountered the supernatural. Fallen though we are, sinful though we are, something's happened. We're changed. In Romans, Paul says that his spirit in us testifies with our spirit. That we're the children of God. That's in Romans. I didn't put it on the scripture sheet. I wish I had. Go home and look it up. His spirit testifies our spirit. What? That we're the children of God. Jesus said it this way in John 13, 35. This is on your scripture sheet. By this all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. Now, these words have a depth of meaning that we do not have time to mind this morning. But Jesus was saying, your way of life, your way of loving, will prove the spiritual rebirth that has taken place in you. You're going to have a love the world doesn't understand. You're going to have a joy the world doesn't understand. You're going to have a peace the world doesn't understand. Why? Because you've been changed on the inside. And because the same Holy Spirit that changed you is dwelling with you. You've got to be a different kind of person. You couldn't be who you were because you've been changed. And because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. That's how we're described in scripture. We're not, we're not described as a people who, who have saved ourselves and we've lived these dynamically good lives in merit all this No. We have been transformed by the grace of God and by the Holy Spirit of the living God who has invaded his creation and invaded our lives. You were changed by the Holy Spirit and dwelled by the Holy Spirit and there's not another interpretation. You can't interpret Scripture any other way. Sometimes you can interpret Scripture and you can say, well, it can mean this. You can't interpret Scripture to say anything other about you, if you're a Christian, than what Scripture says. You're transformed by the Holy Spirit in your inner being and the Holy Spirit dwells with you. You can say, That's a lie. I don't believe it. You can say it's a fairy tale. But the one thing you can't say is that the Bible teaches something else. That's what the Bible teaches. Just as Jesus made the blind to see and the paralyzed to walk, proving his deity... You have a love that the world does not understand. You have a joy that sings songs in the darkness, a peace that is beyond your own imagination. Why do we fail so miserably in this sometimes? Because we have given away the supernatural to the secular world. You know, sometimes the world around us gets so bad that we there's so much stealing and thievery and people breaking into our houses and taking our stuff that we get double deadbolts on our door. And where the screen door used to be, there's an iron door. What are we doing? We're not giving in to the thievery. We're saying, not here, not on my property. This is what I own. This is what belongs to me. And you can't come in and take it. But we haven't done that inside the church. As the world gets more secular around us, we act like things are so bad that we might as well give away the supernatural. We might give away the virgin birth. We might as well give away the angels. We might as well give away the rebirth of mankind. This is the one thing, and it's where we close. This is the one thing I want you to take from this message. We must not, we must not hide the supernatural nature of the gospel We must not hide the supernatural nature of what has happened to us. We don't hide from it, and we don't run from it. Do you know where I first heard men and women laugh at the deity of Jesus? Laugh at the idea of angels and the supernatural? It wasn't out in the world. It was in a Presbyterian college. And those who were laughing were actually ordained Presbyterian ministers. The world, you see, the world around them had laughed at the supernatural. And so they ran back to the church and said, We've got to get rid of the virgin birth. We must get rid of angels. We've got to get them out of the story. The world is laughing at us. We must get rid of the miracles of Jesus. It's absurd to think he was God. God doesn't become flesh. And they have been zealously trying to get the supernatural out of the church ever since. We must get back to the supernatural nature of our faith. The supernatural nature of our doctrine. We must get back to the supernatural nature of who we are. And if we're going to counter this pervasive secularism, that is even the atmosphere we breathe in this culture. We've got to come back to who Jesus is and who we are. This gospel filled with the supernatural has changed individuals, has changed families, has changed cities and nations and civilizations. Fairy tales don't do that. Wherever this supernatural gospel has gone, the family has been strengthened. Schools have been built. Children's homes have been built. Hospitals have been built. Civilizations have been built. You remove the supernatural aspect of this gospel to please the world around you and it will become an anemic story that changes nothing. I can tell you this one thing about liberal churches that have forsaken the gospel. You go and sit inside of them and you can sit for 20 years and you'll never see a soul converted. You don't see people flocking there to be healed. And they eventually close their doors. Every time I drive through New England, I'm appalled at the number of church buildings that have been turned into museums, boutiques, and bed and breakfast. No church filled with the Holy Spirit has ever closed its doors and become a museum, boutique, or a bed and breakfast. And it never will happen as long as the Holy Spirit currently abides there and the Word is preached. Unashamedly, I want to close Now, looking at Philippians 4, 5 through 7, and we're done. Look at it with me. The Lord is at hand. What's he saying? Paul is saying the supernatural is near. God is near. God from outside. The Lord is near. He's at hand. The supernatural is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart. In your minds, in Christ Jesus. Why did I choose that passage? Paul wrote this from a jail in Rome. He was under the threat of death. He was to be executed. The church in Philippi had written him a letter, concerned for their father in the faith. And he wrote them back this great precious letter. A letter to the church at Philippi. He had already told them in the opening of the letter, the first few paragraphs. He said, don't worry about me. To live as Christ and die as gain. He had already told them that he would rather depart and be with Christ. He comes down to the end of the letter and he talks about a peace that the soul cannot imagine. I have a place to go, he was saying. It's not into the nothings. I don't cease to exist. Where does it begin? The Lord is near. He's drawn near. He's invaded his creation. This is a supernatural thing. All of us will be where Paul was sooner or later. We'll be where Paul was facing death. We'll be there. All of us will, unless Jesus returns first. Let me tell you, when you get to the point where Paul was, if a supernatural God is a stranger to you now, he will be a stranger then. If a supernatural Jesus is a a stranger to you now, he will be a stranger then. If a supernatural act of praying is strange to you now, it will be strange to to you then also. People, this Christmas, once again, make this a time of renewal with the Father who sent his Son. Make this a time of renewal with the Son who is your elder brother. Make this a time of renewal with the Holy Spirit who indwells, who's changed you and indwells you. Once again, stand and confess the incredible supernatural truths of Scripture in the incarnation. Make it your purpose. Make it your purpose that when you are faced with what Paul was faced with, you will say to your children, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And you'll be able to write with Paul and to say to your children, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, children. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving children, let your requests be known to God. And children, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your soul in Jesus Christ. Amen. And now that's what we're going to say. One of the great, great Christmas hymns of all time. The words of it just say exactly what has been preached this morning. Hark, the herald angels sing.